0: Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott, born in 1921. He was well known throughout the world for his writings and godly influence in the global church. He founded Langham Partnership in response to the growing needs he heard from churches and pastors in the majority world. Stott passed away July 27th in 2011. He leaves behind a legacy that continues to expand through the power of God's Word, carried by scholars and pastors equipped by Langham to preach the transforming truths of the Bible. John Stott stressed that we care and value God's creation. He was an honorary chaplain to the Queen from 1959 to 1991. John Stott was a pastor to pastors, a servant of the global church, and an author of more than 50 books. He dedicated his life and earnings to seed and grow the ministry of Langham Partnership. Today on Easter Sunday, John Stott presents a study on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ.
1: Well, I'd be grateful if you would turn immediately to our text. And for the time being, I draw your attention only to the first ten words. Here they are. Now, brothers, and sisters are included, of course, now, brothers, I want to remind you of the Gospel. I want to remind you of the Gospel. The Apostle Paul addresses these words to us tonight through the word of his epistle to the Corinthians. I want to remind you of the Gospel. Because the human memory is notoriously unreliable, we need constantly to be reminded of things we know lest we forget them. Both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter we're constantly engaged in this reminding ministry. And it's especially important when we're thinking about the gospel, because if we're Christian people, we are gospel people. We are evangelical people. And we must constantly recall what the gospel is, since it lies at the center of our faith and the center of our life and the center of our mission. So how does Paul identify the gospel? What is he talking about? He tells us. One, it was the gospel preached by the apostles. True, he says in verse 1, that I want to remind you of the gospel which I preached unto you. But later he identifies his fellow apostles as being associated with him in the proclamation. Secondly, it was the gospel received by the Corinthians. Paul was not proclaiming some new gospel. He was proclaiming the old gospel that he had preached on his first visit to Corinth and which they had received from the beginning. Thirdly, it was the gospel on which they had taken their stand. Hope you're following the text. The implication here is that their faith was under attack, so they needed to stand firm on it and not give way. The gospel is the only sure foundation on which it is possible for you and me to build our lives. And fourthly, it was the gospel by which the Corinthians literally were being saved, They were on the road to their final salvation on the last day, provided that they held fast to it and did not let it go. So there are four things that he tells us at the very beginning as to what gospel he's talking about. So we ask again, what was it? What is it? This gospel which the apostles preached and which the Corinthians received and on which they were standing and by which they were being saved, What are the essentials of this apostolic gospel, without which the gospel is no longer the gospel, but has become an aberration or a deviation from the truth? So, if we had time, it would be very, very, very interesting to get your answer to those questions. Can you give me a clear answer as to what the gospel is? I hope by the end of tonight, all of us will be persuaded. As to its content? Well, the initial answer to our question is obvious. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died and rose again. We learned that by heart just now, and I ask you to note again, this time, the skeleton of verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, That I deliver to you what I also received as the first importance that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and that he was raised. The essential truth of the gospel concerns the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle says it again in his first letter to the Thessalonians. Chapter 4, verse 14, he writes, We believe that Jesus died and rose again. So the death and resurrection of Jesus together constitute the essence of the gospel. But I don't think that will satisfy you, I hope it doesn't, because the Apostle has more to say about the Gospel than that bare skeleton. It's only a brief statement that he makes, but it's brimful of important implications. Let me try and unfold some of them together with you tonight. One, the, the Apostles preached the death and resurrection of Jesus as central truths. I passed on what I also received as of first importance that he died and rose again. Now, of course, there is more to the gospel than the bare facts of the cross and the resurrection. Also important are his virgin birth, his sinless life, his mighty works, his glorious ascension, his gift of the Spirit, his continuing reign at the right hand of the Father, and the prospect of his coming again. All this and more is part of the gospel. All these things are important. But the apostle says they are not of first importance. Indeed, the whole Bible is gospel. The whole Bible from beginning to end is the Father's testimony to the Son by the Holy Spirit. But what is of first importance, of central importance, of supreme importance is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now secondly, the apostles preached the death and resurrection of Jesus not only as central truths but as historical truths. The Christianity is essentially a historical religion. It rests on certain facts and events of history without which the gospel would crumble into ruins. So, Hinduism, as an example of another religion, is not a historical religion. It does not depend on any historical facts or events. And if all the facts of the Christian gospel were to be destroyed, Hinduism wouldn't mind. Hinduism is simply a collection of ethical and philosophical ideas. But it is not dependent in any way on any historical facts. And even liberal Christian theologians argue that the resurrection is mythological rather than historical. And therefore, they say we must demythologize the statements about the resurrection in the New Testament. Indeed, by demythologizing, what they mean is that we must strip from the New Testament teaching the historical clothing in which the resurrection is presented. And we must be left only with a truth without any historical basis, whatever. Indeed, the truth we are left with is this, they say. That since the, the death of Christ was also the death of the apostles' faith, their, their faith died with him, therefore the resurrection was a revival of their faith. They claim to believe again. In other words, the resurrection was not an objective historical event. They say it was a subjective experience in their own hearts. But that is not what the Apostle Paul teaches. To him, the resurrection was an event leading to an experience. But without the Easter event, there can be no Easter experience. Well, that it was a historical event is clear from a little telltale phrase that you will have noticed, on the third day. The resurrection of Jesus Christ can be pinpointed on the calendar of history. And it's very significant that that little phrase, on the third day, came to be incorporated in the Apostles' Creed, as did another telltale little phrase with regard to the death of Jesus, namely that he suffered under Pontius Pilate so because he suffered under Pontius Pilate and he was raised on the third day we are assured that these were historical events historical truths so first the apostles proclaimed the death and resurrection of Jesus as central truths second as historical truths and thirdly as physical truths In other words, they both concern the body of Jesus Christ. Actually, as we learned when we were learning these uh, verses 3 and 4 by heart, there are four events that are mentioned. The death, the burial, the resurrection, and the appearances. He died, he was buried, he was raised, he was seen. There are four events, but of those four, two are the central truths. And the other two are added in verification. Thus he died, and in order to demonstrate the physical reality of his death, he was buried. Then he was raised from the dead, and in order to demonstrate the physical reality of his resurrection, he was seen. And Paul goes on to give a list of the resurrection appearances, to three individuals, to Peter, to James, to Paul himself on the Damascus Road, and then to three groups, twice all the apostles, the twelve are mentioned, and then more than 500 believers at once, probably in Galilee. Now all these four events concerned his body. He died in his body, he was buried his body, he was raised and he was seen in bodily form. So notice particularly that the Jesus who was raised and seen was the very same Jesus who had died and been buried. So what was raised was what had been buried. Some liberal scholars say that the Apostle Paul knew nothing of the empty tomb. They say that the four evangelists speak of the empty tomb, but the Apostle Paul never refers to it, they say. But he does refer to it, because if the buried body of Jesus was raised and seen, then the tomb was empty. He had been buried, then he was raised. What was raised? What was raised was what had been buried. And therefore, when it was raised, there was nothing left in the tomb. So that's the third thing. Now, fourthly. No, I'm not ready for fourthly. Sorry. Let me go double, uh, double break and go back. Are we clear that because the resurrection was a physical event, the word resurrection is not a synonym for immortality. It's not a synonym for life after death. It's not a synonym for the survival of the personality or the influence of Jesus. It's even questionable whether we should sing, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive. That's not what we mean by the resurrection. We should say he was risen, he is risen, because it indicates that his body was involved in the resurrection. The process of decay and decomposition was arrested, his body was wonderfully raised, and simultaneously transformed into an altogether new vehicle for his personality. So the resurrection body of Jesus was the first bit of the material order to be redeemed. And the resurrection of his body is the pledge that one day the whole universe is going to be redeemed and transformed. So now we're ready for four. The apostles preached the death and resurrection of Jesus as central truths, as historical truths, as physical truths, and now as biblical truths, because both took place, were told according to the scriptures. That is, of course, according to the scriptures of the Old Testament, which now clearly and now not so clearly predict that the Messiah would die and rise again in glory. So this means that there were two major witnesses to the death and resurrection of Jesus. The first was the Old Testament witness, testified by the prophets, and the second was the New Testament witness, testified by the apostles. Indeed, an encounter with the risen Lord was an essential qualification of being an apostle. You couldn't be an apostle if you hadn't seen the risen Lord. In his early sermons, Peter regularly says this. He says, you killed him, God raised him, and we apostles are the witnesses. And Paul makes the same claim here. He says in verse 8, last of all, he appeared unto me. It was a strange appearance because it happened after the ascension and not just after the resurrection. But Paul claims it was a true resurrection appearance. And in chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And that resurrection appearance was essential for the apostolate. So the Old and the New Testaments are united in their witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Fifthly, lastly, you'll be glad to hear, fifthly, the apostles preached and proclaimed the death and resurrection of Jesus as theological truths. That is, they were not historical events only. They were events of enormous theological significance. But I delivered unto you what I also received as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins. He says, "That's probably the most important phrase in this whole passage. He was ra- and then he was raised from the dead in order to demonstrate that he had not died in vain." Now, friends, I want to ask you to consider very carefully with me that phrase, "He died for our sins." At first hearing, it sounds a very innocuous statement, but its implications are tremendous. For this reason, that sin and death are coupled together from the beginning of the Bible to the end. So, at least the beginning of the Bible, you take the second chapter, in Genesis chapter 2, and we read, God says to Adam, in the day that you eat the fruit, in the day that you disobey me, in the day that you sin, you will surely die. And then the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, the awful and grim reality of hell is called the second death. And in between that beginning and the end, again and again in the Bible we read, the soul that sins will die. Or again, the wages of sin is death. You see, sin and death belong inevitably together uh, throughout Uh, the, the Bible. So the human offense is sin and its just reward is death. So what is amazing in this phrase is that Paul writes not that we will die for our sins as we deserve, but that Christ died for our sins in our place. We did the sinning, he did the dying. He died bearing in his own innocent person the condemnation that we deserve. So the wages of sin is death, and Christ received those wages in our place. Now, in theological circles, this is called the substitutionary death of Christ. It is extraordinarily unpopular. Some people get all het up about it. But to me, it is the most wonderful truth that has ever been told that he took our place, he bore our sin, he paid our debt, he endured our penalty, and he died our death. We cannot escape it. Ours was the sinning, his was the dying. And then the resurrection. The resurrection was God the Father's seal of endorsement on the sin-bearing death of Christ. And the resurrection says, in effect, what he died to achieve, he did achieve. And God was satisfied with what he had done. Because Christ died, we can be forgiven. Because Christ had been raised from the dead, we know that we are forbidden. Again, they belong essentially together. Well, how shall we sum up? The gospel focuses on the death and resurrection of Jesus as central truths of first importance, as historical truths raised on the third day, as physical truths the buried body was raised, as biblical truths attested by both the Old and the New Testaments, the prophets and the apostles, and theological truths relating to our sin and to death for our salvation. And so we come now to verse 11. I hope you have your Bible open still. Notice this wonderful summary. Whether then Paul says it was I, Paul, or they, the other apostles, so we preached and you believed. Have you ever noticed those four pronouns? I, they, we, and you. It indicates that the death and resurrection of Christ was the original gospel and is the universal gospel today. But Paul goes on. There were some people in the church of Corinth who were denying that believers on the last day will be resurrected from the dead. And Paul therefore goes on, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how is it the Jew declare there is no resurrection? Because if there is no resurrection, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, the consequences are too appalling to contemplate. Here they are. One, the apostles would be false witnesses because they've testified that God did raise Christ from the dead, which he didn't if there is no resurrection. So we are condemning the apostles as false witnesses. Secondly, verse 17, our Christian faith becomes futile. We are not forgiven. We are not saved. We are still in our sins. Thirdly, verse 18, the Christian dead, who've gone ahead into eternity, have perished. And fourthly, verse 19, we Christians are more to be pitied than anybody else in the world if we hope in Christ only in this life and have no hope for the life to come. To there are four terrible, or would be four terrible results if Christ had not been raised from the dead. But, verse 20, that mighty adversity of conjunction. But, he goes on, Christ has been raised from the dead and therefore is the first fruits of those who have died. In other words, just as surely as the first fruits are followed by the harvest, so will Christ's resurrection be followed by our resurrection on the last day. So it's time to conclude. The death and resurrection of Jesus are these central truths. And dear friends, I hope you'll lay hold of them and never, never let them go. True, there are other verses in the New Testament that seem to indicate that the cross is the center of the Christian faith. And so it is, but only presupposing that the one who died on the cross has been raised from the dead. The death of Jesus is the death of one who was subsequently raised. And we have to hold the death and resurrection together and never separate them from one another. And if this foundation is missing, then the whole superstructure of the gospel crumbles in ruins. Where well, we began with ten words. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. And we need this reminder Because of our Christian faith and our Christian life and our Christian mission are all dependent on the gospel of his death and resurrection. Let's never stray from this centrality. Let's keep listening to the words of the apostles as they assure us about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And may God keep us as individuals who are gathered here tonight, and may God keep us as a church loyal to the true gospel of the death and resurrection of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Let us pray. We spend a moment or two in silent reflection. We ask ourselves if the death and resurrection of Jesus, his atoning, sin-bearing death and his glorious resurrection... Are at the center of our Christian faith, life, and mission. And let's pray that they may be in this church and in other churches throughout the world and in our own individual lives. Let's reflect for just a moment in silence. Lord Jesus Christ, together we desire to thank you with all our hearts for your death and resurrection that you died for our sins and that you were raised to prove it and we pray for ourselves and one another and our churches that we may be loyal to this good news we ask it for the glory of your great and worthy name amen
0: You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.